This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Today's sermon reading is from Galatians chapter 2. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who, were, who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Drew. And of course, in all seriousness, uh, I'm so grateful for both Drew and Raquel, amazing, amazing servants to all of us. Thank you, Drew. Recently, a couple of us on staff had heard uh, Diane Langberg, a Christian psychologist, both at uh, RTS and Covenant Seminary, give an address, and she was speaking on trauma, but she started with this story. She, she told of a story of a recent trip that she took to Ghana for a conference on violence against women and children. And when she was there, the whole group visited Cape Coast Castle. And Cape Coast Castle is, is a place where hundreds of thousands of Africans were forced through dungeons. And after they went through the door, the next thing they saw was a, a ship, a vessel that would take them across the Atlantic. And she tells a story where they stood in one of the male dungeons, listening to the darkness of the, the guide telling them this 
horrific story. And at some point when he's telling the story, he asks them this question, do you know what is above this dungeon? Do you know what's above us? They all shook their heads and he said, the chapel. Directly above 200 shackled men, she says, some of them dead, others screaming, all of them sitting in filth. Above them sat God worshipers. They sang, they read the scripture, they prayed. She says, I suppose they took up an offering for those less fortunate. The slaves could hear the service. They could hear the worshipers. And sometimes the worshipers could hear the slaves as they were making them behave as so not to disturb the church service. And she said it took her breath away. How could this be the evil, the suffering, the humiliation. She said the, the injustice was overwhelming in that moment. And she said, ever since then, it's been a visible parable to me. And of course to us. I, mean, I could share this story again and again and again and we could make all types of applications to this reality. But fundamentally, what shocks me is that the people in the chapel were so numb to the horrific suffering below them that they, though free in Christ, were actually enslaving people underneath them. And to us, we think, how is that possible? How, How could they have that blind spot? Well, it follows us. It follows us even in Southern Presbyterianism, Okay? Not too long ago, in some churches now, you'll get a token to go to communion. And it would be some pure metal, maybe silver or something. And you'd get a token to come to communion from the elders. And there were African-American brothers and sisters in the church who would be allowed to come to the table, but they wouldn't be given a coin that was metal. It would be something less pure because, of course... We can't waste the real metal on them. That's not that long ago. You see, we can speak of freedom, right? There's a, there's a big difference between emancipation and true freedom. There's a big difference between something being a law, something being believed, and then that thing being practiced in our life, right? That's why Martin Luther King Jr. in his I Have a Dream speech People, I suppose, could have said, well, African-Americans, black people are free. Well, maybe, kind of. And so, you see, the point I'm making is that all of us have blind spots, significant, severe blind spots. And it's way beyond race. I use that because I think that it needs to be spoken to more frequently than it is. Yet, it is pervasive, These blind spots that we have where we profess things with our lips and then pervert those things with our lives are everywhere. It's insidious. Everywhere we go, we are doing this. Our churches and institutions have certain belief statements and yet we betray our beliefs constantly by cultural practices that we create in those very institutions. And so we are all prone to perverting with our lies what we proclaim with our lips. Today, 
Paul is speaking into a church that's being invaded by ethnocentric Jews. People, as we've talked about in the last two weeks, who have come in and are preaching a message that in order to be a first-rate Christian, you have to become Jewish. You have to be circumcised. You have to take up the law. And Paul is so angry for a couple of reasons. One, because they're trying to enslave these people. Again, which we've talked about and we'll talk about in the future. But what he's, I think what he's primarily frustrated about that we'll see over and over again is this, this, the perpetual danger for the church of perverting the only thing God requires for salvation, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Right? The, the gospel doesn't tell these Jews that they have to stop being Jewish, but it also doesn't tell the Gentiles they have to become Jewish. As we said here, the gospel says yes and no to every culture all the time. The gospel is a third way. And so in this passage this morning, Paul tells us two stories to illustrate two tendencies. All right? So the first story, story number one that Paul tells is Paul and the pillars. If you look back, he says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. First of all, I was trying to put myself in this place Can we start the clock? Is that possible? Because I'll go forever if I can't see how long I've been going. So, where was I? Yes. So I was thinking and trying to reflect on this, that that 14 years, how long is that? This fall is my 14th year of being a believer. And as I reflected on that, I thought about how much happens in 14 years, and yet how short 14 years is all at the same time. And so 14 years after Paul's conversion, he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with him. You see, the false teachers in Galatia that he's combating with this story, they've been telling the Galatians in different ways that Paul's gospel is out of accord with the real gospel, and it's because Paul isn't a real apostle. Uh, Paul didn't walk with Jesus. He's a good guy, but a bad theologian. He's a good guy, but he's missed out on the pure teaching Of the church, and that is Jewishness must be taken on to be a first rate Christian. Right? It's not removing Jesus, but it's Jesus plus circumcision. And so Paul responds by setting the record straight with this first story, telling them, Oh, hey, by the way, the very pillars that you're telling me I'm out of accord with, let me tell you something about my interaction with them and my relationship with them. You see, the the story that Paul is telling here is preceded in the end of chapter one. He tells of his first journey to Jerusalem after a believer. Maybe a couple years or so after he became a believer, he goes up to Jerusalem the first time to get acquainted with Peter. So he gets acquainted with Peter, and he says, I met James, but only for a moment. I mainly talked to Peter, and I went back to do this ministry. And as he's doing ministry, he has these Judaizers or troublemakers who come in which he's mentioning right here, that they, they came in to spy out the freedom in Christ. That language is espionage language. They were spies. They came in, to, in, a, in a covert operation to try to see what was going on and then change it, to get a foothold and then create disruption. Well, Paul cut them off, so much so that 
on his second trip, which he's talking about back to Jerusalem, now he's on his second trip, it's mainly for humanitarian a relief project, collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. But while he's there, he pulls aside Peter, James, and John, and he talks to them. And it says here that, uh, let's see, where is it? He did it secretly, verse 4. Uh, sorry, that's, that's not true. Uh, in verse 6, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he pulled aside those who seemed influential. This is Jeter, Peter, James, and John. And he, he talks to them so as to make sure that he's not running in vain, he says. Now, he doesn't mean he's concerned that his gospel isn't the true gospel. What he's concerned with is that the apostles in Jerusalem somehow have mistakenly communicated or he's just confirming that those people in Galatia who are speaking on behalf of them, making sure they're wrong, and it's this. He uses this foot race analogy. I want to make sure I wasn't running in vain. In other words, Paul says, I know I'm running my leg of the race. I've been called to the Gentiles. I've been called here. Uh, They've been called to the Jews but I'm carrying my gospel baton. I want to make sure that they're handing off their gospel baton and not preaching that there are two churches, the Gentile church and the Jewish church. Because Paul knows that there's one church in Jesus. And that's why he takes Titus with him. He takes Titus with him because Titus is a Greek, as we read, and he wants to show the pillars, those who seemed influential, all that God's doing in the Gentile believers. And they see Titus and they, they rejoice and they say, of course, no, he has faith in Jesus. He does not need to be circumcised. Paul thought the issue was done then. So they go back and yet here we are. He, he sets the foundation in the Gentile church in the churches of Galatia, goes to lay another foundation, going on on his missionary journey. And now he's writing this letter because false teachers have come in again trying to enslave these people. This is twice he thought that he had confirmed that the, the baton was being handed correctly. There's one church in Jesus Christ. But, of course, there are disciples of people who twist things and get them messed up. And we'll talk about their motives as we continue to move on in Galatians. And so, Paul is telling this story because he wants them, the Galatians, to see two benefits of his second trip to Jerusalem. He wants them to see, first... Titus, a Gentile, was fully accepted by the apostles and was not forced to be circumcised. That's the first thing he wants them to see. The second thing he wants them to see is that they recognized and acknowledged his commission by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says they did not add anything to me, he didn't need to be ordained by them. He was already, he was already commissioned by the Lord Jesus. They, rather, recognized his commission by the Lord Jesus. And so, in actuality, it was the false teachers who were out of step with the so-called pillars in Jerusalem. It was not Paul. So that's why he tells this story. Now, the second story he tells is about Peter. Story number two is about Peter's pretense and Paul's protest. Now, you know what pretense is, right? Pretense is an attempt to make something that isn't true appear to be true. So you can make yourself appear to be happy when, in fact, you're angry, right? That's pretense, okay? So what's happening here in this story is that Peter had no problem eating at the same table at the church potluck with the Gentiles, okay? Table fellowship was a big deal uh, in biblical times, okay? Especially for Jews. It really mattered who they sat at the table with, who they had fellowship with over a meal. 
Well, Peter has been learning since Acts 10 that God shows no partiality, Acts 9 and 10, or 10 particularly, right, with Cornelius, and he goes to this house, and he makes sure they know he doesn't want to go in. You know this isn't, you know I really shouldn't be here, right? It's almost as though he's, he's still not sure if God shows partiality, but then, of course, he sees the Holy Spirit fall, and he says, well, who can withhold water for this guy to be baptized and all these people? So he's learning, he's learning that God shows no partiality until James and the boys, well, really, James's boys roll into town from Jerusalem to come check out what's happening in Galatian church. And as they're coming, Peter tells, Paul tells the story of Peter pushing back from the table. And the particular word is, is a military phrase. He says he, he drew back and separated himself. So think about in the movies when you see allies coming to support another army in battle, and right when the battle gets tough, the allies draw back and they leave the others exposed in the fight. And you see that happen in movies maybe and and you see the betrayal and you see the wickedness that by their cowardice and fear when the battle got tough they drew back and they drew away. That's exactly what Peter did. It wasn't out of principle. It was out of cowardice that he drew back. And Paul wants the Galatian church to know this. Not to shame Peter but to tell them he's, he's not so surprised that they would be caught up in this because even Peter was. Even Peter was confused. Even Barnabas was confused. And of course, they would be confused. So, two stories. And they tell us two tendencies that we all have, okay? Tendency number one is an attempt to supplement the gospel. Listen, a perennial danger for the church is that Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. Always. That's what this was, a supplement to the gospel. It can't just be Jesus and faith in him alone for salvation. The false teachers in these churches in Galatia, for them it was circumcision and the law. Becoming Jewish was necessary. Well, we do these things too. We so often elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. How do you do this? You think you don't. Right, okay. Usually what gets added to the gospel is something that is good in itself. Something that's very good in itself. Maybe some particular experience of the Holy Spirit. This good experience and all of a sudden it becomes part of the gospel. Part of the saving message. That without that, you're not really saved. You're not truly saved. Maybe it's some special ministry that people must be involved with. Usually it's the ministry that you're involved with, that other people must be involved with in order to truly get the gospel, to truly understand it. Maybe it's some methodology of doing devotions or Bible study, right? That it's, it's Jesus plus this, or I can't trust you, that you're a, a real Christian, that you're a true Christian. Maybe it's some ways to grow a church or some ways not to grow a church, gets added to the gospel. And so different people are suspect. Maybe it's raising a family in some distinctive way that becomes part of the gospel. If you don't do this and believe in Jesus, you don't really believe in Jesus. You're not really saved. Maybe it's some political or social cause, some way of doing or not doing what the world does. But for the gospel to be the gospel, it has to stand alone. The gospel has to be Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus plus nothing. 
Not Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus Bible study methods. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And for some of us, what we struggle with isn't so much requiring other people to add something to their faith in Jesus, but as we live out our faith in Jesus, we make up rules for ourselves. We, we think to ourselves that in order to be worthy of God's love, I have to do this. It's not enough to throw myself at the, at the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. I have to add my own behavior. I have to add my own performance in order to bend God's ear to me, in order to get right with him again. And a lot of times this is connected to our story, right? It's how we were taught to interact relationally maybe with our family or with loved ones or with friends or with neighbors. And so for us, some of us, uh, we believe that in order for God to look at us again after we sin, in order for God to listen to us, in order for God to be kind towards us after we discipline our kids out of anger, after we tear someone down in our minds as they cut us off in traffic, as we write an email in such a way where although it was kind of our fault, whatever went wrong at work, we wrote the email in such a way that it's possible that someone else is implicated, right? We, we skirt the issue. And then we realize this and we're, we're convicted by it and we see how selfish we are. There's a thousand ways that we see how selfish we are day in and day out if, we're reflect, if we do any self-reflection at all. And, and you were taught that in order for your father to look at you with love, you had to walk on eggshells and perform a certain amount of penance, right? There had to be enough time before you could repent and come back into the loving arms of the Father. And some of you add that to the gospel. It's like, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but it can't only be that. It can't only be that. It has to be, I believe in Jesus, plus I make myself feel bad, at least a little bit. I believe in Jesus, plus I have to give myself a little bit of time before I confess my sin and be received again in communion with the Father. We all have these ways that we add to the gospel. Maybe, maybe you can't show any weakness or confusion. You can't show weakness or confusion because if you show weakness or confusion anywhere in life, you're questioned. And so when you feel particularly weak, the very thing that should draw you to the gospel, you're repelled because you don't want to show your weakness to the Father. You don't want to show your confusion to the Father. What is it for you? What is it that you add to faith in Jesus in order to be accepted by the Father? There are so many ways day in and day out that we enslave other people by making them conform to our subculture expectations of what it looks like to be a Christian. And there are ways that we destroy our own experience of God's love because of our story and because of all of these things we heap on us. We, we just should and should and should and guilt and guilt and guilt and shame and shame and shame. Sometimes we think about ourselves as less worthy of God's mercy and grace because you think, I ought to know better by now. I've been walking with Jesus long enough. There's so many ways that our minds can be twisted in order for this first tendency 
and that is to supplement the gospel with anything, fill in the blank. Now, the second tendency is an attempt to be or appear superior in the gospel. And I almost put these together because I don't know how I can ultimately separate this, and this is why. If you supplement the gospel with anything, guess who gets to supplement it? You. You supplement the gospel with your values, with your expectations, which gives you a better chance of actually performing these supplements. And then once you perform them, guess what? You're superior either to your old self or to the other person who doesn't subscribe to the way you supplement the gospel, whether it be a a style of music or a certain doctrine. I mean, I love doctrine, and, and our tradition does, and it's one of our gifts to the church. And yet, how often do we feel superior because our doctrine seems to be so clear and systematic and beautiful and God-honoring. And yet our hearts can be so cold and our lives can be so insular that we don't actually engage our neighbor in God's mission, even to say hello, even to knock on the door and say, hey, I'm, listen, I'm so sorry, I've lived here for five years and we've never met. And I wish that I would have done it before, but I just want to say hi, my name is Damien and it's good to meet you. Right? There, it's, it's never too late. It's never too late to do that type of thing. It's never too late to say hi to your neighbor when, they're in, when you're in the front yard and they're in the front yard. That's what the hurricane was great for, right? God is scattering us, sending us out maybe. And so what happens when we supplement the gospel with our own subcultural expectations, we become superior. And Galatians is partly about ethnocentrism, which I named. It's about turning a cultural distinctive of being Jewish into a necessity for salvation. But deeper than that is this issue. It's this danger of adding our own requirements to the only thing God requires of salvation, which is faith in Jesus Christ. And I think we do that in an attempt to be superior. That's another way to say it more succinctly. So as I said, the gospel says yes and no in every culture and to every culture. And Paul views himself as a freedom fighter for something fundamental to Christianity at all times. And that's this question. What does it take to become a first-class member of God's family? That's what they're really asking. How do you become a first-class member of God's family? Well, of course, the answer is there is no first-class or second-class member. It is a wrong distinction. So Paul reframes the question. How could there be, right? Every Christian is saved exactly the same way, by grace, through faith, in Christ. So the church cannot exclude or discriminate for salvation on the basis of race, gender, class, age, or anything else, even if they don't read from the ESV, right? Some of you don't get it. (laughs) Those of you who did, thank you. I really went out on a limb on that one. Right? Christians do have a way of ranking sin, though, don't we? We re-rank sin. I mean, like, you know, if you struggle with lust or if you're greedy or materialistic, that's understandable. Right? Who doesn't? We live in America, 21st century. If you're gluttonous, both whether it be food or experiences or media or whatever, That's not that big of a deal. Everyone struggles with that. But if you're struggling 
with depression or your marriage is falling apart or you're tempted to harm yourself or commit homosexual sin or if you're addicted to drugs, that's, you need to keep that to yourself. Nobody says it, but look around. All of us are really squeaky clean. All of us domesticate Christianity. All of us have sanitized the real struggle in our life. And we don't even know it, but it makes us look like we think we're superior in the gospel. But we're not. We're not. Any church in the world who preaches that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, is on equal playing field for salvation with us or any of our favorite pastors, theologians, and churches throughout history. It's really important because it's insidious. It, it shapes the way we think about the body of Christ. It shapes what we think is important. It shapes, skews what we think God thinks is important. And so Paul would tell these false teachers in Galatia, do not get it twisted. Your culture, your subculture is not more godly or impressive than anyone else's. Salvation is in Jesus alone. So this idea of sin ranking so that Christians are superior or inferior to other Christians is against Paul and against a beautiful line in the old hymn that says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's what our hope is built on. It's that alone. And then let's just cut each other some, some slack. Let's give each other some grace on the other things that do matter. They absolutely matter. But let's get one thing straight. We discuss, we dialogue, we debate on a, on a level playing field with one another. We all have blind spots. And praise God that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has pierced through that darkness in our blind spots, and he's made us one family. And so I ask myself, why are we so susceptible to pervert this good news? Because it is good news. And I'll close with this. Ben sent me this great, uh, Ben Kant sent me this great um, blog post this week that, that had this quote uh, from a theologian on why we are always susceptible to heretical teaching. And this is the quote. We're susceptible to heretical teaching because in one way or another, they nurture and reflect the way we would have it be rather than the way God has provided, which is infinitely better for us. Did you catch that? The reason we're so susceptible to believe heretical beliefs is because in that wrong teaching, it panders to our desires. And we get to then make God more like us instead of us more like God. Luther would call this something like the theologian of the cross or a theologian of glory. And so, as these heretical teachings lead us into the blind alleys of self-indulgence 
and escape from, from life, heresies pander to the most unworthy tendencies of the human heart. That's why we're so susceptible. We're susceptible because we are susceptible to anything that makes much of us or we and less of them. We're so susceptible to that. I'm susceptible to that all day, every day. But the beauty of the gospel is that in Jesus' all-sufficiency, it means we don't have to supplement anything with the gospel. And then in, in Jesus, we don't have to strive to make ourselves superior in any way. We're completely valued in Jesus by grace through faith. And I wanna close with this. This picture has stuck with me uh, this week. I love the Olympics. I just finished reading a book of the unlikely story. It's called The Boys in the Boat. I think it's, whatever, 1936 Berlin Olympics, or was it 36? 36, right? And uh, this unlikely story of how this rowing team from the University of Washington goes and wins the Olympics in rowing, okay? And uh, I went on YouTube and watched the video. It's actually, there are videos because it was part of Hitler's propaganda, so everything was captured. And uh, you can go and watch them win, and they just eke it out. And so there's a, there's a picture of them putting on their gold medals. Now imagine if they tried to somehow improve upon that gold medal. What could you do to improve upon the medal? Right? What if you thought, well, I'll dip it in platinum, and that might improve upon the medal? You'd be like, that's ridiculous. You can't improve upon a gold medal. You can only destroy the medal. But so often when we try to supplement and make ourselves superior in the gospel, it's like we take a gold medal and try to improve upon it. But you cannot improve upon the righteousness of Christ. You can only walk away from it. Just like you can't improve upon a gold medal, you can only destroy it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now asking for your love and uh, in a new way, in a way where some of us uh, feel very convicted right now and and others feel angry and uh, others feel indifferent and your mercy is sufficient for all of those responses and more. I ask that this community would increasingly become a community that you, by our neighbors, by our brothers and sisters in Christ of other traditions and other churches, that we would become more aware of our blind spots so that we could repent of them and we could participate in your mission in Orlando and beyond. We have to be reminded of these tendencies to supplement the gospel with our own preferences and then our tendency to try to make ourselves superior in the gospel for whatever reason. Change us in Jesus' name.